Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Are you ready to begin? Yes, I'm all set, girl. Any program about science or scientists today is almost bound to focus on space. Thank you. Welcome to Space Boffins with Sue Nelson and Richard Hollingham. In this podcast, we'll be discussing how to land on a comet. Richard will be finding out from NASA how to bring back a piece of Mars and the latest news from the UK mission that's putting the first phone into space. We're in partnership with the Naked Scientists and as there's a space science conference underway at the Royal Astronomical Society in London, we're recording this edition of Space Boffins from the Society's Council Room, which is a bit of a running theme on Space Boffins. <laughs> council the, rooms. We were, yes, council, council rooms of the world's space societies. This one is particularly grand. I would say more like a library. Lots of telescopes, beautiful gold embossed books on these wooden uh, shelves. They even got those globes that look like there ought to be drinks in them. <laughs> Our guests are Andy Morse from the Open University and Robert Massey from the Royal Astronomical Society. And we start with a launch en français. Cinq, quatre, trois, deux, un, top. Allumage Vulcain. Décollage. So today's useful space fact is that the French for takeoff is décollage, which I must admit, when I first heard it, I thought it was décolletage, which, which of well, it's, a it's whole, French, whole different thing. Yes. <laughs> well, that was the launch in March 2004 of the European Space Agency's Rosetta spacecraft, a mission that will not only fly to a comet and study it for more than a year, but land on it too. The spacecraft is still on its way, and the Open University's Andy Morse is one of the principal investigators on the mission. Andy, when you hear that that launch going, does that sort of bring back, does it bring tears to your eyes? It was an inspiring moment watching it take off after five years of work and then seeing it launch successfully on its way. Um, So where's Rosetta at the moment? At the moment it's somewhere around about the orbit of Jupiter, so it's done a 10-year journey, it's now out around about Jupiter and it's coming back in towards the comet. It is quite a sort of circuitous route during these 10 10 years. Asleep at the moment or is it sort of, you know, stopping off at asteroids along the way? It's past two asteroids on the way and then June... 2011 it was put into sleep because it's too far from the sun to operate all its systems and it will wake up again sometime in January 2014. And that's so exciting isn't it because then you're preparing Uh, to actually reach it. Yes at the moment we're in the operations planning and preparing when it wakes up a hibernation it'll be testing all systems finding out as we get to the comet what it's going to look like and the final preparation to landing on the comet. 
Now, Robert, there's been quite a, a bit of confusion recently, I think, with the media <laughs> sort of incoming into, into Russia, particularly in the UK anyway. A lot of um, people who probably should know better um, were confusing meteors with asteroids, with comets, with meteorites, with, with, with what have you. But there is, there is some grounds for confusion, actually, because we don't really have a clear difference, uh, or at least in size, between an asteroid and a rock. I mean, we all know what a rock looks like. You know, you go outside, you might be able to pick it up if it's very small, and we call it a pebble. Um, and if it's the size of a mountain, we'd probably say that was an asteroid. But, you know, I'm not really sure that there's an official dividing line between the two. So what's the difference between an asteroid and a comet, then? Again, there is, there's some evidence of an overlap in that, too. But broadly speaking, comets uh, have got a larger component of ices, uh, materials and gases that are frozen solid when they're far from the sun. When they get close to the sun, the heat of the sun warms them up, and then they stream off as tails, driven back by the light of the sun and the, uh, the solar wind as well. And an asteroid's essentially aren't going to do that if they're rocky if they unless they've got some of these little bit of material in them and there is some overlap but on the whole that's a working definition one is more like a rock and one has got this icy component in it so you could draw a graph or a table and put comets at one end and asteroids and then meteoroids and <laughs> then meteors and then, no meteorites and then meteors well, How would you well, meteorites um, are at the bottom. i mean yeah i mean if you, th- if you think about things, and when, when you talk about things like meteors and so on, what you're talking about is stuff that's hitting the Earth. Now, if it's out in space, we call it a meteoroid, even if it's very, very small, dust size. Uh, if it's um, a bit, you know, huge, we'd call it an asteroid. When they come into the Earth's atmosphere, if they burn up in the Earth's atmosphere, as you see it coming in as a, sh- as a shooting star, a common term, we'd say that was a meteor. If it hits the ground, it's a meteorite. So, so essentially, if you find a lump of rock on the ground that's come from space, that's a meteorite. Regardless of its size? More or less. I mean, if it's a big asteroid, it's probably not going to be that trivial to go along and <laughs> pick one up. Or, there will be other issues to worry about. But, but broadly speaking, if it hits the ground, it's a meteorite. Andy, the, the common that um, Rosetta's going to the 67P let's see if I can pronounce it properly not for nothing is it shortened to CG because it's Churyumov Gerasimenko is that yes. right? Yes. What made this a suitable comet because it wasn't necessarily the first one that you were aiming for It's a short period comet so its orbit is well known and predicted has a period of a about five years, with a long-period comet by the time it's seen and spotted and the space mission has got ready, it'd be too late and gone back into the outer solar system again. So, so when you say period, that's the, the amount of time it takes to orbit the sun? Yes, in one orbit, yes. And then the first initial target was Comet Vertinan, but the spacecraft Ariane 5, the launch before, had problems and failed. And so because the Rosetta mission was an expensive mission, it was postponed until the problems with the Ariane 5 were sorted out, and by which time that comet was sort in the wrong place. <laughs> so they then had to choose another comet which would be in the right place, and that was uh, So was CG. it purely the fact that this comet was going to be in the right place at the right time? It wasn't in terms of size? or Because if you're going to land on it, you, you want something that's a reasonable size as well. Size came into it. Vertinan was a smaller comet. It was about two kilometres, one or two kilometres in radius, CG is quite a bit bigger and it's on about the limit of landing depending on the other properties of the comet like density and gravity. So tell us a bit about the, the lander itself, Philae, P-H-I-L-A-E. Yes, uh, Philae is about 100 kilograms. It's usually described as being about the size of a washing machine. Everything is on space. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Every satellite is, yeah. And it contains um, 11 instruments, including cameras, uh, sensors to determine the hardness of the comet, 
two mass spectrometers. A drill as a well. A drill to collect samples. So it's actually going to dig down into the comet and collect samples from the surface and beneath the surface and pass them to the mass spectrometers. It includes microscopes. And the instruments are about a quarter of the mass of the lander. So it's quite a um, high ratio of instruments to lander payload. I mean, this is just fabulous, landing on, on a comet. When is it going to happen? It's going to happen next year, is it? Or you're going to rendezvous with the comet next year. When will the landing? Will, will you sort of orbit around for the year before you land, or are you going to land first, sort of go for it? We approach the comet, and then there's a mapping phase where the orbiter instruments will be mapping the comet, trying to determine a good place to land. Also, during that time, making measuring the comet while it's still inactive. And then... In November next year is when the orbiter will approach to within two kilometres and more or less drop the lander off wow. from two kilometres height. Two kilometres, <laughs> that's so close. Wow. And about half an hour it takes to drop it down onto the comet's surface. So will you actually orbit around this comet or, or do you fly at the same speed as the comet is flying around the sun? You've got to sort of match the velocities and the... It's mainly matched velocities with the comet. There's still discussions on the planning, depending on how much activity there is in the comet, how safe it's considered by the engineers to approach a comet, what else is happening in the area. But it will come close to the comet, do flybys, uh, do uh, pseudo-orbits, where uh, use the spacecraft jets to try and keep it in orbit, because the comet gas coming off will try and push the spacecraft away. So it will be in the vicinity of the comet for about three or four months. This is a great mission isn't it i mean robert you're looking impressed i mean just think of the precision error you're taking something on a 10-year mission around the solar system making three flybys the earth one flyby of mars two asteroids and then you approach to a really close distance to the comet and then you drop something the size of a washing machine over (laughs) half an hour get it into the right place fire a harpoon to tether it to the surface (laughs) this is brilliant i mean if you if you look back at the start of the space age you know routinely (laughs) spacecraft missed the moon which you think you could just point at you know and missed it by thousands of kilometers (laughs) went in completely the wrong direction so to be able to do things like this it just shows how the the huge advances in engineering that make make this possible and you're not going to miss it are you andy let's just clarify that we hope not. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing's guaranteed. Too long of a pause there for yes. my liking. But yeah. uh, it is a risky part of the mission, and there's a lot of discussion on getting that part of the mission correct. Well, we'll keep, keep our fingers crossed and uh, stay with us <laughs> as we continue with more space news from Space Boffins. And you can find us on Facebook and Twitter. Just search for Space Boffins. More recently featured Apollo 17 astronaut Charlie Duke when he was in Pontefract. Well, Apollo 15 astronaut Al Walden is also on his way to Yorkshire in mid-March for Space Lectures. This is a non-profit organisation that gives school kids the chance to meet Apollo astronauts. If you want to meet him, you can visit their website, which is space-lectures.com. And if you don't get the chance, well, listen to next month's podcast, as we'll be featuring an interview with Al Warden himself. I've just read his autobiography, and he does sound like one of the more interesting, let's say, of the uh, Apollo astronauts. Meanwhile, the big space news this month is a UK success story. After launching on board an Indian rocket, the Strand 1 satellite, which put the first smartphone into space, edging out NASA, is now fully operational, a little bit like the Death Star. Strand 1 was built by a team from the University of Surrey and Surrey Satellite Technology Limited. And instead of a computer and instruments on board, it has an Android phone. Apps on the phone include scientific experiments, as well as one aimed at proving 
wondering whether in space anyone can hear you scream. Something we featured a while back, actually, on, on Space Boffins. Well, Chris Bridges is one of the project leaders. He's at a conference in the mountains of Montana right now. But thanks to the wonders of a free hotel Wi-Fi, we were able to reach him. And he started by explaining why they decided to put a phone in space. The phone is currently being used to figure out and test whether or not all the small components that are in them can be used in larger satellites. And so there's lots of pieces like the, the memory, the computer and things that are really, really powerful and driven here down here on Earth by consumer electronics. And we want to test if they can use, be used in space. And it's launched. It made it into orbit. How's it doing? Yeah, it's doing well. It's currently operational. And we're currently just going through debugging and commissioning, which is where we're just testing out all of the critical systems. So what's the first app you're going to test? The first app app we're going to test is our telemetry app. um, And this is one that's really starting to log all the little pieces on the smartphone. So it's how the memory's working, how the computer's doing, if it's had any problems, all these sort of things. And what was the feeling like when you actually discovered it is now operational? Celebration? Yes, the feeling was absolutely fantastic. The team here was uh, very, very elated and very, very excited just to hear the first signals come down. You know, we had to make sure that we got the data down that we wanted and we got the signals all decoded correctly so we can find out how it's operating. Um, but yeah, it was an absolutely fantastic feeling. In terms of the other apps then, what are the ones you're really looking forward to testing out? With the apps that we're having, other than the telemetry one uh, that I'm probably most interested on, the, the Facebook ones that we've been running uh, include the iTessa, which is looking at the magnetometer data. That one is going to be, I think, really, really interesting just to find out whether or not the components we typically use for CubeSats, actually, the, whether or not the actual phone's sensors that it has can actually live up to the same sort of standards, the same reliability, the same resolution, or maybe it can outperform them. And then from then, we want to be uh, moving on to the Scream app which is where we'll see if we can detect the vibrations from their screens in space. Are you involved in any of the thrusters, the sort of Star Trek-sounding devices? All right, yes. So so we have two sets of different uh, thrusters on there. One is pulse plasma thrusters, which were built by a guy called Dr. Pete Shaw here at the Space Centre. And that one was a sort of six-year program. It's gone from its PhD all the way to building it and all the way through to launching it, which is really fantastic for him. And the warp drive, which is a water-alcohol resistor jet propulsion system, is one that is built by our partners, Surrey Satellite Technology Limited, to really see uh, whether or not we can use uh, some some easily uh, available systems and easily available propellants on CubeSats. This is pretty amazing for students, isn't it, to actually do this and then suddenly find that stuff that they've been working on in the lab is now up in space. I know it's it's really fantastic and you know I feel very privileged to be able to have gone through this sort of process you know the students that have been able to work on it have ranged from undergraduates to MSCs all the way through to PhDs and researchers and the same at SSTL they've had sort of young graduates or we've had some of the other teams that have just wanted to learn something new and it's been just a really great experience for everyone. Sort of jealous really. (laughs) Yeah it's well you can come work on the next one. (laughs) I'd love to. (laughs) Excellent Chris Bridges from the University of Surrey. It's pretty inspirational isn't it this? 
it's you know what I love about this kind of project, this homespun feel that it has. I mean, I'm reminded of a couple of years ago, you had this uh, crazy story of this primary school in Devon putting potato in uh, into the upper atmosphere on a weather balloon, and it, it smacks of that a bit. I mean, I'm not disparaging the science they're doing, which sounds really incredible, but uh, it's great actually. You no, know, it's 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 clearly not a bad idea to investigate this sort of routes to look at things like taking the best mobile phone technology, taking it to orbit. I mean, frankly, if it works and it allows people to do more of that kind of thing for less money, that's that's got to be a good thing. And it would save you a tremendous amount of money, wouldn't it? Certainly for uh, satellites orbiting the Earth, not not high-cost satellites. A lot of the effort on the missions is getting the electronics to work in space and Ptolemy, when it's built 10 years ago, we were just about moving to surface mount technology as a very new technology. Ptolemy is the instrument that you're working on on Rosetta. Yes, yes. Rosetta, so it's 10 years, but the surface mount was just being introduced. Surface and now mount? It, these are components used in mobile phones rather than discrete components like resistors and capacitors. These are now components soldered onto the boards directly and much smaller and maybe much more robust. Because that's the whole point, really, is that a mobile phone is designed to be dropped. It's designed you can leave it on a car windscreen. To, it can cope with extreme heat. It can do all these things, and it's something we all carry around. And it's been tested by millions of people in very strange environments from deserts probably to Antarctica. So it's gone through quite a lot of the range, and now it's working in a vacuum system. And I don't suppose your spacecraft has a warp drive, does it? Afraid not, no. It would be much easier. I've got to say that they were chortling away when that acronym was used that's why it said the star trek thing (laughs) it's brilliant isn't it right well mars has been in the news lately after the request from dennis tito and the inspiration mars foundation for an older middle-aged married couple to go on a long distance trip well we'd like to thank everyone who suggested us while at the same time also say that we feel more than a little insulted at being considered (laughs) middle-aged any comment robert what about your age? No, no. I, I, well, it, it's look. It's an interesting idea. I mean, I, I can think. I'm sure there wouldn't be a shortage of volunteers. Actually, it's it's one of those things. That, there's a few of these things kicking around, and you kind of get the starting money coming in, but actually putting the whole lot in to make the mission viable always seems like a big step forward. So we'll wait and see. I, I always have my doubts for them. They'll go much beyond the sort of publicity launch stage just because they need so much cash. <laughs> you know, it's, not, it's not getting the people to come along and do it. It's actually, well, you know, launching something big enough and carrying enough supplies to take two people to Mars and back mm. is, is not a trivial thing to well, do. Well, a lot of people don't actually realise that Richard and I are married. Probably to each other. To each other, yeah. uh, probably because of the, the different um, surnames. And we do we spend a lot of time together we work together we both worked as science journalists that's how we met at the BBC but I must admit we, for all that getting on brilliantly the only time we bicker and not get on is in the car so can so, you imagine so can you imagine how, how many year trip to Mars and back <laughs> it would be dreadful so we stay with Mars, and, and no one's put one of the uh, big questions of space science better than David Bowie when he wrote, Is There Life on Mars? I won't sing it. The Curiosity rover is, of course, wonderful, but it's trying to answer a different question. Were there ever conditions for life on Mars? So what's the next step? Well, NASA has plans for a Mars sample return mission to bring back rocks and soil from the Red Planet. I met David Beatty, NASA's Mars Chief Scientist at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, and engineer Deborah Bass. And I started by asking David, why go to the trouble of bringing a sample back when you could just as easily use a robot to look for signs of life? 
the power of sample return is that we can get the samples back into Earth laboratories and analyze them 50 different ways. And depending what we discover initially, then the experiment can be adjusted, the instrumentation can be changed or sent to a different laboratory, none of which is possible by sending missions to Mars. If you have the wrong experiment on your mission, on your rover, you can't modify that. If you bring samples back, you have all of the power of Earth's laboratories at your disposal. And how much are we talking about in, in terms of bringing back? I mean, a, a, I don't know, a handful of a rock, a couple of rocks, how much? One of the very interesting things is that analytic inter- instrumentation here on Earth has advanced a lot over the past 20, 30 years. For Apollo, the amount of material that was brought back was measured in hundreds of kilograms. But we don't actually need that much mass in order to make these kinds of measurements. And careful thought has gone into this question because it does become a driver for the implementation. So how, how big your, your sample return craft has to be, I suppose. Exactly. How big the rocket has to be that will lift the samples into Mars orbit. And the thinking is that samples on the order of 15 to 20 grams, something like that, is enough per sample. And we'd, of course, like to have more than one sample possibly 20 samples of that size, 20 samples, 15 grams, which would be a total of 300 grams. So less than, less than a kilogram. Yeah, it's, it's Wait, like it's half a kilogram. Yeah, the size of what would fit in a coffee cup. That's enough to answer these kind of questions. Part of that is we want to make sure that those samples are acquired in a meaningful, careful way. So we want to make sure that we're targeting a variety of samples and that we have context, we understand where those samples were taken. If we just go to a random location on Mars and started tossing things into a a, a coffee cup, it's unlikely that we would find what we're looking for. However, what we would like to do is to make sure that we have a, a, a range of sample types so that we have some rocks that are from volcanic activity, that we have some rocks that are formed in water, a whole range of things, and that we make sure that we understand exactly, that we document where the pieces were taken. If you've got these stages and these various missions planned and various stages of planning, how do human missions fit into this? Well, our vision is that a human mission would lie on the other side of Mars sample return. Mars sample return has a second very important purpose, which is to demonstrate a rocket that can leave Mars. And the way we say that sometimes is, if you can't demonstrate the ability to return a rock from Mars, how can you believe you can return a human from Mars? So the way we envision the forward planning would be Mars sample return, and then that would be followed up by human preparation you know, a specific focus on preparing for humans and then the actual human mission itself. And what sort of timescale are we talking for for all these these missions, all these stages? We've been currently given direction that we're supposed to try to have humans to the Martian system by 2033. So we're working towards that at this moment. Let me hasten to interject that those dates tend to shift around and they're driven by political considerations around budgeting, around national priorities, partnerships in the international arena, and every country has their own forward timelines and budgeting possibilities and so forth. So 
you know, 2033 is a notional date. How that ultimately stabilizes, of course, is, you know, best left for the future. I've read a few things recently that have suggested that NASA's obsessed with Mars, that it's all about Mars and you're forgetting, you know, the moon of Saturn, for example, Titan and the, the Jupiter system, all these other potentially fascinating areas. Well, uh, the United States draws its science priorities from the National Academy of Sciences. The federal government is directed, basically, to ask the National Academy to adjudicate questions of scientific priority. A major effort was put in about two years ago or so to evaluate the priorities in the planetary science arena in general. In the flagship class of missions, they did their priorities in several, several buckets. And in one of these buckets, the flagship, so-called flagship class, Mars and Europa, which is one of the moons of Jupiter, were judged to be the highest priorities. So those two missions properly should dominate the planning for the next 10 years or so. And activity is happening in both arenas. We would say they are both very deserving targets. There are strong scientific arguments for both of them. So it's a little overstated to say we're focused only on Mars. There is a big solar system out there with lots of open questions, and we'd like to pursue as much of that as is possible. David Beattie, NASA's Mars Chief Scientist at JPL, and the Mars Program Science System Engineer, Deborah Bass. So you can clear your diary, Sue, for 2033, then. <laughs> well, indeed. Andy, was a comet sample return ever considered for Rosetta? At the start of the mission, it was going to be a comet sample return. This was in collaboration with NASA because of budget concerns. The mission turned out to be just going to the comet, more or less led by the European Space Agency, with some NASA instruments on the orbiter and land as well. Do you share those opinions on the, the advantages, though, of, of sample return as opposed to a robotic spacecraft with everything built into yes, it? Yes, in sample return, you, can, you know where the samples come from. You can look at it in much more detail. You can change your experiments as you find out more information about the material. On top of that, in 20 or 30 years later, as technology improves, you can look at the sample again. So for lunar missions, where we got samples from 40 years ago, we're still analysing those materials with the new technology we're developing today. Uh, and Robert, well, we heard that, that uh, number 2033 as this Mars mission, human mission to Mars. Everyone around the table kind of groaned, yeah. oh, that's never going <laughs> to happen, is it? Well, it's not so much that it will never happen. It's just that if you think right, right back to even the end of the Apollo program, if you put a bet on people going to the moon by 1980, no, nobody would have taken your bet. You know, the Reagan years, mm. the Bush years, uh, even to some extent like the Obama administration, there are goals that get set for missions to Mars. And they tend to recede, I suspect, not just for political reasons, reasons but actually because it's a difficult thing to do if you could get to mars and back in a few weeks which is a long way off but if you're in that sort of situation it becomes a much i don't know somehow more straightforward undertaking in terms of the people and all that kind of thing at the moment when you're talking about probably a two-year mission the complexity of taking people as you know as the contributors are describing down onto the surface of a planet with an atmosphere taking it off again returning it to the earth when we haven't even done that with rocks 
then this is still some way off. And it's not really surprising that, you know, a lot of people roll their eyes when they hear 2033, because we've been there before, you know, 2020 and about 2000 and so on. It's usually about 20 years into the future or long enough that the current president will have stepped down, that, you know, the uh, various governments will have changed and they can set those goals without having to deliver them. And it's quite a change, isn't it, to go from get bringing a coffee cup back from Mars to a to a human? Yeah, I mean, I mean look, if the, if the coffee cup... You know, if it goes wrong and the coffee cup burns up in the Earth's atmosphere, everybody working on the missions is going to be devastated, but nobody dies. You know, if you take a couple of people off to Mars, or probably rather more than that, and then bring them back and something goes wrong en route, if there's, I don't know, a large solar flare and they get radi- problems with radiation, or it doesn't re-enter the Earth's atmosphere, people die. So, of course, you want higher standards, and that makes things more complicated. There's also the, uh, the serious uh, question of not contaminating Mars. It's very difficult and probably impossible to sterilise a mission that's got people on it, have them walking around the surface and not take bacteria from the Earth there that might, you know, if there is life on Mars, who knows what that would do to that probably quite fragile ecosystem. It's a, a really serious problem. And um, what about the going the other way with the contamination? That wasn't something that you heard in that interview, but it's something that people are certainly talking about, the danger of bringing a, a bug back from Mars. I mean, there is, the, there is this planetary or interplanetary protection protocol I think it's called which covers exactly that risk so yes any sample you presumably want it to return through the Earth's atmosphere intact in such a way that if the parachute system fails or however they get down to the surface that you, the thing doesn't split open because it's a fairly remote risk but nonetheless of course you, yeah, of course you should take it seriously because exotic you know, exotic uh, bits of life coming to the Earth. Would and like, and you must have examined that when you thought a, a sample return from the comet was on the agenda Andy? Yes, I guess it would be examined, but it's more unlikely for life to be on a comet where it's deep frozen. It hasn't been in an atmosphere with liquid water, so it's probably thought to be more of a remote possibility that it has life in it. You say that, but you often see bandied around that life on Earth could have been started by something by by a comet. While it's in the deep space, I've, I've heard about the orbit of Jupiter. It's too cold for life as Carbon so it's got to, to pick up interact. some bugs on the way, which is why we yeah. get to Mars again, isn't it? As soon as it gets a little bit closer, that's where it's a possibility where life, if the conditions were right, was had the possibility of evolving in the past. And then in the past, and then if it possibly evolved, maybe it still exists, and then you've got the chance you bring it back to Earth. Robert, uh, as an astronomer. Do you feel we're a little obsessed with Mars? I, I think we're sort of justifiably obsessed with Mars. I mean, it's not the closest planet to the Earth. Venus is a bit closer. But nonetheless, it's the closest analogue. It's somewhere you could go and you could walk around. And yes, you'd need a spacesuit. Yes, it's not really habitable as it stands or even close to that. But right since the 19th century, when people had the... the telescopes that were starting to be big enough to see it in detail. They could, they could do that. They could only do that every 15, 17 years or so because it isn't close to the Earth that often. But to be able to see all these features on the surface, to know that there's an atmosphere, to you know un- understand and imagine that there was once life there, of course, is exciting. It's the closest place in the universe where we're like, or well, I wouldn't say likely, but po- there's the possibility of finding life. So that interest is going to be enduring until we answer that question. Well, thanks to our guests, Dr Andy Morse from the Open University and Dr Robert Massey from the Royal Astronomical Society and to the Society itself for letting us record the podcast in its beautiful council room. Do interact with us on Facebook and Twitter. We would love to hear from you. Space Boffins is supported by the Atrium Space Insurance Consortium and by a grant from the UK Space Agency. We're produced by Boffin Media in partnership with The Naked Scientists. I'm Richard Hollingham. And I'm Sue Nelson. We'll be back in a month. Thanks for listening.